Today we're taking a look at Mark chapter 3, but before we get into the text, I want to make a quick comment about how the chapters and verses of the Bible have been numbered. You see, when these letters or books were written in antiquity, none of them had numbers. They were not divided into chapters or verses. That came later. And it actually came during the Middle Ages when biblical scholars were trying to go back to the original Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew texts that they knew existed and were the sources of that material and be able to translate the modern editions into very accurate reproductions. And so in order to make it more clear to a scribe or a translator exactly where in the text that person was working, scribes went through and added the chapters and verses to the Bibles that we have today. And the reason I bring that up is because if you are reading from chapter 2 and you're coming to chapter 3, it appears as though chapter 3 is just plopped down right in the middle of a passage about a topic of the Sabbath. And in fact, you'd be right. So I like to tell people, don't get too caught up in the chapters and verses as if they are some kind of magical grouping. They're not. They're more intended to help us to reference the material directly. But if you were reading chapter 2, you would be perfectly legitimate in continuing on through chapter 3 as Jesus is talking about the Sabbath. Now with that in mind, let's go to the Word of God and read it together, and then we'll talk about it. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, 
so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against himself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and he is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call to him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Well, this is a remarkable passage, and for a number of reasons, there's a lot to unpackage here. We'll start here with the continuation of chapter 2 and Jesus' healing on the Sabbath. Starting to get the sense that his enemies are really getting desperate. Here you have Jesus willing to heal a man who is suffering from a deformity. A shriveled hand in that culture meant he probably didn't work, or if he did, it was very difficult for him to earn a living. He would certainly be seen as an outcast in that society who was probably sinning and God was punishing him for that. Here, his Jesus' enemies are getting so desperate that Jesus knows in their heart what he's about to do is going to make them very angry. So he tells the man, stand up, and then directly asks his enemies, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or evil, to save a life or kill. But they remained silent. Here, Jesus starts to and continues to exhibit the kinds of emotions that make him human. He was angry and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Boy, we've all been there, haven't we? He says to the man, stretch out his hand, and he stretched it out, and it was completely restored. Now, at this point, if you have just seen a miracle, and you are kind of a reasonable person, you should and would be astonished. You would probably say to yourself, I don't know necessarily who this man is, but he just did something I have never seen happen before. I'm going to listen more to what he's saying. He might have something important to say. But Jesus' enemies were so bitter and their hearts were turning so evil that that miracle of restoration made them furious. We see here the Pharisees went out and began to plot with this group called the Herodians. This is a reference to the more uh, liberal, um, maybe uh, Greek 
uh, forms of Judaism that were happening in that culture at the time. This would be the, the non-Orthodox Jews were aligning themselves politically with Herod and his group of non-Orthodox Jews. Well, here we see that not only is Jesus' uh, enemies increasing, but his, his status in this society is increasing. We see in the very next passage how now we're seeing large crowds are starting to come to him from all over the region. Let's take a quick mental look at the region that we call Israel today. Back in antiquity, you would have Jerusalem as the center or capital of the Jewish region uh, that we would call Judah, or today we would call Israel. And Jerusalem centered in that region that we call Judah is surrounded. On the south, we have a region called Edomia. This is the region where the Edomites settled in antiquity. North of Jerusalem and Judea, we have Samaria. North of that, we have this region called Galilee. On the coast, more north, we have these places called Tyre and Sidon. This is the cities of Phoenicia, and today would be the modern country of Lebanon. And then, of course, across the Jordan, we would have additional regions, um, some settled by Jews and others settled by Greeks and non-Jews. So here we're seeing that Jesus' fame is really starting to spread. Now, I want to make a comment here that while I'm sure that Jesus' message was drawing many people, I have no doubt that his miracles were drawing maybe even more. I mean, you have to understand these people live in a period where there is no health care. Uh, people died regularly of all kinds of what we would consider minor uh, diseases, infections, or accidents, or they would be crippled for life. Jesus is going out into these regions and he is healing these people. Remember, the, almost without uh, just a few exceptions, Jesus' miracles involved restoring and healing and helping other human beings. And so his fame is spreading, and you can see how now it's starting to spread beyond Galilee, where he has been preaching up till now, and they're coming from all over. Now, I want to make another comment about why is it, and I know this comes up, you read the Bible of the Gospels, and over and over, Jesus actually tells people to not tell others who he is. What is happening, and why is he saying that? Well, we need to step way back, and this will actually start to answer a lot of the other questions you might have as we go forward, both in this passage and others. Who was the Messiah to the Jews of the first century? The answer to that question will help you understand the reaction he is receiving, not just from his enemies, but from his own disciples and even his own family. Who was the Messiah for the Jews of the first century? The Messiah to those people was this. It was a model of King David. The Jews expected and interpreted from their texts, that is what we call the Old Testament, and they would call uh, their Hebrew Bible or canon of texts, they were interpreting a Messiah to be a human savior, a king, a man who would be crowned, take his throne, and probably very quickly raise an army to defeat all of Israel's enemies. And you have to remember in this period, 
The Israelites have been through a lot of trial. They have been conquered. Jerusalem was burned to the ground. They were taken into captivity. They were sent away from their land for 70 years. When they returned, they returned to a poor and desolate region that literally took 400 years to rebuild. Now that they have rebuilt to a degree, they are not autonomous. They are ruled by the Roman Empire. And I can tell you the Roman Empire was not very happy with them, and they treated them very badly. So here you have a group of poor, um, oppressed, religious people who are waiting for their chance at salvation. For them, they are waiting for a type of King David to return and settle everything. I want you to think about that as we go through the next few chapters of Mark, in fact, all of the Gospels, because it helps explain now why Jesus' own disciples, even his own family, reacted the way they did. First, I want you to think about here that we have the calling of the twelve apostles. We call them apostles or disciples. Um, A disciple is a student, a person who learns from a teacher, a rabbi. They're also called apostles because that is one of the primary functions of a follower of Jesus. Apostello is the Greek verb. It means to be sent out. One of the roles of a disciple is to be a disciple. That is, to be a student of Jesus and to follow him and to copy him. The second role of a disciple is to be an apostle. That is, to be sent out. And when you're sent out, what do you do? You preach by telling other people the good news of Jesus. And in the case of the 12 apostles, they had a couple of extra roles. The second one is that they were supposed to cast out demons. And that is to take the uncleanliness of demonic possession away from people who were possessed and free them. And the third act was to heal them. So the Disciples were not sent out to do magic tricks. They were not sent out to wow audiences. They were sent out to tell people about Jesus, their teacher, to heal them, and to cast away the demons. Now let's get back to why, when Jesus confronts people who are possessed by these demons, why does he almost always tell them, don't tell anyone who I am? This gets at how spirituality works, both in the first century and even today. In the first century, if you knew someone's name, that meant that you had great power over them. Typically, a slave may not even know their master's actual name. Why? Because it gives you power. If you know their real name, you have some power over them. Now, that was greatly extended to the spiritual realm to say that if you had the name of a demon, for instance, that might be possessing you, If you knew the name of that demon, you could command it by name to do things, usually like to leave. Or if you were feeling saucy, you could command demons to attack people, right? Now, in a way, that gives, I think, us much more control over demons than is really possible. But it definitely explains Jesus' power over them. Jesus is telling not just the demons... But even the people that he heals who are Jewish don't tell people who I am. Okay, I want you to think about this for a minute. Given what I just told you, that most people of this era, I'd say everyone of this era, 
had the wrong impression about what the Messiah would be. If suddenly this guy named Jesus shows up and everyone starts saying that he is this military leader who has come to save Israel from the evil Romans, what is going to be the very next thing that happens to him? That's right. He's going to have the entire Roman army bearing down on him. And of course, we would today, as believers of Jesus, say, well, it wouldn't matter because he has power over the universe. He could stop them. Yes, but what he's trying not to do is stir up things among humans too quickly. He's trying not to get the humans too fervently up into this, whipped up into this frenzy. The only time he really has allowed that in his entire ministry comes on Palm Sunday. Because he knows the minute that he kind of lets the cat out of the bag and lets the whole world know, yeah, I'm the Messiah. I am the man who has come from God to save the Jews. The very first thing most Jews are going to do is put a crown on his head, grab their swords, and go, it's on. And they're going to start fighting. Jesus is trying to prolong this so that he can have more time to establish First of all, the truth of who he really is, and he needs time to do that. And he's secondly also trying to establish personal relationships with people to build their discipleship, their maturity, and their character so that he can, he can communicate accurately who he is and that record will be here for us so that when things really do go down in Jerusalem, right before Good Friday and he's crucified, that enough people have heard his message and grown in their walk with Jesus, that they're ready now to accept who he really is. But at this point in his ministry, we aren't ready for that. And Jesus knows that. So he's being very careful. I have healed you one-on-one. We have a personal relationship. Let's kind of just keep it between you and me. But I think Jesus also knew human nature as well. What happens when you tell someone not to tell a secret? (laughs) They tell people. And we have ample evidence that people disobeyed, because he kind of knew they would. In fact, uh, we're kind of glad that they disobeyed because we have records of what they said in the Bible today, 2,000 years ago. So let's move on. The next passage that we talk about is this Beelzebub passage. What is going on there? Well, here again, we see now that Jesus in verse 22 has caught the attention of the teachers of the law from Jerusalem. Now, this is the big leagues, folks. This is the big leagues. This would be like saying today, Congress has become aware of a person in the United States who is saying things about you, the government, about the people, about the world. These are the power brokers in Jerusalem, and they pull the strings of the entire society. They have, he, Jesus has caught their attention. But now they are even claiming something so ridiculous. It shows you their desperation. The thing that they say when when they come down from Jerusalem is they go, he is possessed by Beelzebub. That that name might ring a bell. Baal, from the Old Testament, means Lord. Zebub, meaning flies or insects. Lord of the flies. Prince of demons. He is driving out demons. This is a ludicrous argument. And and this is what I'll say about Jesus. Say what you will about the man. He's brilliant. (laughs) 
He is actually brilliant because he can always take an illogical, emotion-charged argument and turn it around on someone. And he does that here. He looks right at them and says, well, how can Satan drive out Satan? That's like saying that, uh, you know, uh, the robber can have power over his friends and keep it. No, uh, there's no honor among thieves. There's no unity among thieves. It makes no sense. Why would Satan be casting out demons when he wants those demons to do his dirty work? But the analogy that Jesus gives is really important here. It's actually a very big deal. He says, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Remember that comment. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Then he talks about, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up that strong man. And then he can, uh, you would say, plunder or remove the possessions of that house. Who is Jesus talking about here? He's talking about Satan. The house is the world we live in. And Satan today is the ruler of that broken, angry, corrupt house. But it is divided because Satan cannot unify. And so Jesus is the only strong man who can enter that house and finally defeat Satan once and for all. Jesus isn't robbing the house. The Greek here is better translated as take away the stuff that was in that house and carry it away to safety. If you want to think of it that way, the the possessions here are us. We are the we are the possessions of Satan in his broken house and when we give our lives to Jesus, Jesus comes in and he ties up Satan and he carries us away to safety. That's the meaning of this passage. But I don't think it's an accident that we have that story kind of nested within this talk about Jesus' family showing up. And this is the last thing I want to talk about today, which is a little shocking for people who have maybe not really read this or thought about this before. Think about what the text is actually saying here. Jesus entered a house and a crowd gathered, so he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to, the Greek is, seize him, like the same Greek word used for capturing a prisoner. They came to seize him. They said, he is out of his mind. (laughs) Just think for a minute what that means. We know from Matthew and Luke that Jesus' parents knew who Jesus, at least what what God said Jesus was going to be before he was even born. He was going to be the savior of the world. But here is his, and actually, side note, we know a lot about Jesus' family here. Holy cow, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Well, now we know that Jesus has a mother still alive during his ministry and at least more, uh, two or more brothers, right? And we know that he has at least four brothers later in the text. But how crazy is this? Your mother and brothers are outside to seize you and take you away because they think you're out of your mind. What is happening Go back to what I said earlier. Who was the Messiah for the people of Judea in the first century? He was a king. He was a conqueror. He was a military leader. And he was a human. He, his family has got to be wrestling with that now. Saying, look, we thought you were going to raise a rebellion 
And his disciples thought the same thing. They're all jockeying for position so that when this military conqueror takes over, they're at the top. They do that throughout his entire ministry, by the way. But they have it dead wrong. They all have it dead wrong. And Jesus is trying to make this point here. You are all dead wrong about who you think I am and who the Messiah is. I am not a military conqueror, at least not yet in history. I am not here to kill a bunch of Romans. I am not here to take all of you on a, on a road show and put you in the king's court in Jerusalem and have a new monarchy where we're the tough guys and we lay waste to everyone around us, at least not today. This was really, really hard for everyone around Jesus to understand. They just could not wrap their heads around it. Instead, we've got this guy who's a poor peasant. He is healing people. He is really causing a lot of problems with the people in Jerusalem. Think again, too, this Messiah that the Jews expected would have been like a savior to them as well. They would have imagined the people from Jerusalem, if you were the real Messiah, they would have loved you. They should be supporting you because you're our guy. You're on our side. Instead, what is his family seeing? All of the important people in Jerusalem hate him. The teachers of the law hate him. The Pharisees hate him. As we'll see later, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin itself, the high priests, they will all hate him. What is going on? If that's true, then maybe my son is crazy. Maybe he's not following the path we thought he should follow. This is exactly the point. Jesus is saying, you've got it all wrong. I love you, but you've got it all wrong. I am not the person you thought I was. In fact, I'm much better. And it's going to be a struggle for you, disciples, for years to come to really wrap your head around who I really am. I want you to think finally today for this last piece. Does this happen today? You better believe it. (laughs) For those who are not saved and those who have animosity towards God, those who he even says here in the text have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, those people who will never give their lives to Jesus, they have it all wrong. They don't really know the real Jesus. I would argue if they did, they wouldn't be doing this. And to some degree, maybe they do at some level, and that's what makes them angry. But you have to see even today, there's still many people that don't really understand who the real Jesus is. Is he a, is he a hippie? Does he just love everyone and there's no consequences? No, all of that's wrong. There is a real Jesus out there, and only by prayer and meditation and reading the Word of God and knowing the Word of God will we know who the real Jesus is. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time when we talk about Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4.